trying to talk to you in high school Couldn't even get a look cause you were too cool But now we're older and we're playing by the new rules We lived and Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to Card Advantage. I am Clues, one of your faithful hosts, and joining me, as always, is your other faithful host, Rich. Rich, how are things tonight? Things are surviving. Well, that's good. That's way better than the alternative, because we don't want zombie Rich on this show. I don't think. know that. Well, it would know. mostly just be brains and moaning, and that's just that's just not right. And I, I don't think any of us want that, quite frankly. Probably not. I am surviving here in the frozen north. Uh, we had faculty orientation for most of the week, which... You are not in the frozen north. You're still in the eastern time zone. You are dandy. The upper is the frozen north. Yeah, okay, so the you... You are a whiner. No, 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 look. I don't think it's that bad. I'm actually enjoying it. The weather today was spectacular. I don't think we got above, like, 65. It was awesome. Unfortunately, it's going to get back into the 80s over the weekend, and that's no good. Nobody wants that. Hey, nobody got time for that, but it is what it is. Well, hey, Rich, you Yo. know, one of the things that we talk about on this show is... Magic? Uh, magic, yeah. This is a show about magic, uh, as as unbelievable as that seems. Uh, but one of the things we talk about a lot is uh, local game stores, right? I know I... Well, I used to love my local game store, but then I moved, and now I don't know what my local game store is, so I'm still working on that. But there are some awesome local game stores, and we encourage people to support their local game stores. And with that in mind, tonight we have an amazing, super special guest that I'm just so stoked to get a chance to sit down and talk to. Bon Jovi. It is, in fact, no, actually, it's all of Def Leppard, strangely enough. That is uh, way better than Bon Jovi. Which had absolutely nothing to do with local game stores, so that was the worst segue we've ever... No, that's not even close to the worst segue we've ever had. I'm but, like, I don't think you've listened to this show before, Clues. Yeah, well, I, I just edit it and then put it out and hope for the best, quite frankly. Uh, I assume last week's episode was perfect. I didn't edit it at all. I just shoved it right out. Didn't even truncate silence. That's what I'm going to say. All of that's lies. But we have with us tonight an actual, honest-to-God, live local game store owner. And it's not just any local game store, right? We could just go get some random local game store from anywhere. But no, it is, in fact, the owner, well, one of the owners, of Atomic Empire in Durham, North Carolina. It's a great shop. You should check it out. But tonight we have JJ from Atomic Empire. JJ, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks. That is great to hear. So I have actually known JJ for quite a few years now. An embarrassing number of years. Uh, yes, we're going to pretend that it was a short number of years. But yes, an embarrassing number of years uh, now. And I have been going to JJ's shop since before it was Atomic Empire, back when it was sci-fi genre, because it, it used to be sci-fi. That's what the old name was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sci-fi genre. And we'll get all into that name a little later. <laughs> I absolutely swear. Uh, but JJ, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll we'll talk about some game store stuff. Wow. Okay. So, um, what is there to know about me? Almost nothing. Um, That's not true. I came out of college. I was dating a guy who's a huge nerd, and he got me into gaming. Like I, I'd always been into computer gaming, and I'd always been a huge board gamer, but I had never done role-playing games. I didn't know anything about magic. I thought that mm-hmm. magic was this game that the nerdy guys in the band played, and I thought I wasn't cool enough for them to teach me how to play. 
Um, so when I met somebody who knew how to do all that stuff, I was immediately taken with him. Uh, so is, that's Mark. Is this a nerdy guy? I was going to say, is this a nerdy guy I know? It is, yes. Okay. You may have met him. Yeah, a time or two. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of my introduction into tabletop gaming. Um, and I was immediately in love with that. And he's also a huge comics guy. So, uh, we both have backgrounds in computer science. That's where our degrees are at. Um, I'm also a big reader of genre fiction. Other than that, I don't think there's actually anything to know about me. Oh, I race cars on the what's, weekend. I was going to say, wait a minute. What is, what's, what's genre fiction? Uh, science fiction, fantasy, urban fantasy, fairies, whatever. Now, fairies. She, yeah, there's a whole fairy subgenre now, but don't go there. R- really? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, I do. I mean, we did unban bitter blossoms, so I suppose that's fair. Uh, so she actually just brushed over a little thing. She is an actual, honest to god race car driver. Okay. So for those of you who uh, may remember the movie Buckaroo Banzai, yeah, all she needs to do is like brain surgery, and she's there. Is what. I'm <laughs> Buckaroo right. Banzai. You don't know Buckaroo Banzai? No. Oh was, my God! I was oh. born in the I was born in the eighties, clues. Yeah, yeah, but still, it came out in the eighties. Okay, look, Rich, you have homework. I don't know if it's on Netflix. I'm gonna check here in a few minutes, but you need to see the movie uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, I think it's technically Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. I think it might is, actually yes. be its its actual title. That movie is phenomenal. You need to see this. Like, I'm not even joking. You need to see this. Listeners, write in to uh, mtgcardadvantage at gmail.com and tell Rich how much he needs to see this movie, is what I'm saying. Anyway, that's a podcast for another day, the one about Buckaroo Banzai. But, okay, so, there you are, uh, having graduated from college with a degree in comp sci, like you do. Uh, you found an awesome guy. And uh, he's introduced you to the wonders of tabletop and uh, collectible card games, or maybe the curse of tabletop and collectible card games. It depends on your perspective, I suppose. How- I mean, all those things kind of cut both ways, don't they? Uh, they do. All the best things in life kind of do. So how do you go from it being a hobby to it being your business? How did that happen? Well, we have to rewind to when I'm still in college. And uh, there's a huge – Mark is working in industry because he's a little teeny bit older than I am. And um, there's a huge crash in the tech industry in the Triangle, which is where we live. Um, and Mark is suddenly unemployed. So this so, would have been what, early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to say 2002. Um, and so – Mark is hanging about the house in his bathrobe entirely too often. And I said, you know, you've been buying all of these comic book collections on eBay to fill in holes in your own collection. You're ending up with all of these duplicate books. You know, you buy Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 1 through 10 to get number 8, and you're left with the rest of them. And wouldn't it be great to go on and sell all the duplicates on eBay because it'll get you out of your bathrobe, which will make me happy. Um, and isn't eBay the purpose of that because you're in your bathrobe? Yeah, I was going to say, I think you're missing the point of eBay. <laughs> well, but, but okay. Then you have to drive to the post office. Okay, that's fair. Although I think I've seen people in bathrobes at the post office. That's, that's probably true. also another podcast. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that's because people who go to the po- post office are weird. They Some of them are. Because these days, these days you can find a way to get all that done online. But at the time we had to go to the post office. So... Yeah, so we sold a bunch of Mark's comics on eBay, and we were amazed by how profitable that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the day after the auctions ended, not only did we say things like, uh, I wonder where we should get boxes to put all these in, 
Um, but we drove up to Baltimore with a friend's SUV and bought a huge collection and came home and parceled that out on eBay. And everything just kind of snowballed after that. Uh, we decided the following March that we were kind of getting hosed on these eBay fees and not having – it's hard to have a reputation as an eBay seller, and we thought our grading was really good. So we decided we ought to open a website where we could make the most of that reputation and cut out the fees. And then we said – well, gee, if we're going to carry all of these used comic books on our website, wouldn't it be cool if we like had new comic books and, and did subscriptions? And what would it take to get a distributorship? And then from there, it was, hey, uh, this distributor has a sister distributor that does games, and we're way into that. And everything just kind of got out of control from there. <laughs> okay, so it all started from comic books then. Yes, and here's kind of an interesting uh, little secret that a lot of people don't know if they just listen to the show. Atomic Empire, one of their their big things that they actually do completely behind the scenes is com- comic book subscriptions. So you have tons of customers that uh, you mail order comic books to, right? Yep. Yeah, that's... Yeah, if you stop by the store on Tuesday morning, you will see us doing it. It's, it's actually a, a rather large and impressive operation on Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, so they're so, not just a magic shop. So you mail them? Uh, yeah, we have online subscribers, and they come on and specify what books they want to receive every month. They say, oh, I want to get this title and that title and this other title. And then they specify how often they'd like us to ship them, and whenever that time comes up, we ship them out. Oh, wow. I'm assuming you charge for that service. Yes. Uh, but the shipping's really reasonable. Uh, if you have a small subscription, it's around $3 for shipping. Wow. Yeah, so there you go. That's that's what that's what goes on in the background, uh, you know, while we're busy running tournaments. Okay, so you've got a mail order business going on. When do you decide, hey, you know, we could open a actual store where people could walk in? <laughs> so it had always been Mark's dream to have a brick and mortar store. Um, like from the very beginning, he was like, we should open a store. And because I'm uh, a beady-eyed assassin of joy, I would say that's completely impractical. Game stores go under all the time. We couldn't afford the rent in a retail space. It's never going to happen. Um, so you may call it downer. I call it realism. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's see. So we opened the website in June of 2003. And in about May of 2006, Mark is – still talking about his dream of opening a brick and mortar store. And he finds this piece of real estate that is just a grubby hole in the wall. I mean, it's terrible. It's in a 1970s era corrugated steel building. They call it class C office space, but the prior tenant was a habitat for humanity. And the water stains from a fountain that went bad went halfway up the wall. (laughs) I I, want to say this with absolutely no, no disrespect at all. Clues, you said this was a nice place. Uh, okay, no, no, no. I, I'm pretty sure this was before any shop I've ever seen. Uh, no, this was actually sci-fi genre. Oh, really? It, yeah. clean, it cleaned Suck up that it, nicely? Wow. It cleaned up pretty good, um, actually. Uh, the carpet was coming up all over. It was a disaster area. So we're over at this building and we're pure and you got you have to imagine that there's like 70s era wood paneling all over the interior. I mean it's very vintage. Um and it had been split into multiple rooms in an awkward way. Um that the I can warehouse was a funny L shape that you couldn't do anything with. And so we peered in the windows like kids at a candy store. And we were like, "Oh my god, it's perfect." 
So was this like the scene in Ghostbusters when they've been shown the firehouse and Ray's just all giddy about yes. this building? Yeah, because we're standing out front looking in the window and Mark's like, we'll put the apparel section over there. <laughs> there was never an apparel section. Yeah, I was going to ask um, about that because I don't remember an apparel section. It never materialized. Uh, but there were, there were like two walls of mirrors that would have been perfect for apparel had, had that happened. But I think it ended up just we found a way to suspend games in front of the mirrors. Uh, it was dangerous. So, um, yeah. So we signed a lease in May. We opened in July in a completely frantic because I haven't found a way to open a store that's not a frantic panic at the end. Um, you know, we managed to haggle with the landlord over carpet, et cetera, get things painted. We did all the painting ourselves. Like a lot of it was was done by hand. And uh yeah, moved in in July and we were sci-fi genre. Okay, so was sci-fi genre, was that the name of your online retailer before it was the real brick and mortar or did that happen with the brick and mortar transition? It, it was our website name and it had actually uh been handed down when sci-fi genre first was conceived of, it wasn't a store. It was like a news digest site um, hmm. where the name would have made like at least a little bit more sense. Yeah, it actually makes a lot more sense than store that sells games. Right. Um, so yeah. that was awkward. And when we moved into the brick and mortar store, we talked about changing the name and we had one of those huge spreadsheets of other names we could have had and nothing really stuck. So we just went with it. Right. Like, but, like you do. Yeah. So when you look around the world at terrible branding decisions, you have to think like somewhere there's a proprietor being like, this is a bad idea. But the the, the momentum has taken hold. Mm-hmm. OK, so now you have the name sci fi genre. You've opened a store. This is what, circa 2007, I think you said. Thereabouts. Uh, oh six July is when the store opened. Okay, yeah. oh six July. Okay, so I I did not get introduced to sci-fi genre until two thousand nine. I think it was two thousand nine is when when I got uh, uh, the magic bug. Okay, so early days. Let's talk about the early days of sci-fi genre. So you've <laughs> got a store. Prior to this, you're selling comic books, uh, and you're selling like board games and things online. Was that the thrust of your uh, retail venture as well in the brick and mortar that you were just kind of mirroring what you did online in person? Yeah, well, a lot of um, what we did is we just – we had all this inventory for online sales. And when we opened the brick and mortar, we didn't have a lot of money to invest in additional inventory. So we just sort of put it out on shelves. We bought store fixtures and said, here's our inventory. So the the – what we had in the store was a pretty close mirror of what we were selling online, but we added a game room, which for us was kind of the whole point was to have people come in the store and play games. Um, and so I'd say that obviously is a major difference. Right. Uh, hey, by the way, speaking of the game room, because the game room, for those who never went to the old sci-fi genre, the game room was also kind of broken up into two rooms and they were both kind of oddly shaped. Uh, but the one room had an amazing mural that was painted along the wall. Who did that mural? That was Cara Dor. Okay. And she was phenomenal. She just had, you know, some people are just gifted, and that was her. Yeah. Uh, it had worked in a bunch of kind of uh, fantasy tropes and uh, video game iconography into this kind of flowing mural that went kind of from one style to another. It was really cool. Yeah, and the door to the back hall where the bathrooms were that never worked had this, uh, it was like a, she painted it to look ancient, and then there was a dragon tail coming out from under it. It mm-hmm. was really, really pretty. 
Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, so since this is a magic podcast, I, I have to turn the attention to this. So at what point did magic become a thing for your store? So this is a funny story because, and I, I'm curious to tell it because I'm wondering if other store owners and, and customers have had this sort of experience before. There's a lot of game store politics in an area. No. I, I don't want to shock anybody. Um, and when we opened, it just happened to be, and I promise this was completely coincidental, it just happened to be on the same weekend that the game store across town closed. We didn't know they were closing. They were in a different, they were in Chapel Hill. We were in Durham. You know, it didn't even occur to us that there was a thing. But apparently it got around their magic community that it was our fault that they had closed. <laughs> Which was ridiculous because we weren't even open yet. Right. It's not like we could be stealing their business. So no yeah. magic player would set foot in the store. Wow. Except for two guys. Um, Kirk and, help me out, Mark. A guy whose name is escaping me. Okay, it'll come he's to you a, later, I'm sure. He's a very good guy. Um, and they came out, they said, you gotta do this Friday night magic thing. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, great, yeah, sure, let's do that. Um, Friday night magic was two guys playing magic for maybe six months. And then one day, there was a third guy playing magic. <laughs> the best fierce rivalry ever they had. Oh, the, the two guys, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, no, their meta was really inbred. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, guy number three came in, and I'm sure it wrecked everything. Um, right, yeah. And then there were four people playing magic. And it was a really long time before we actually managed to fire a, a, a legitimate Friday Night Magic. Like a sanctioned game, yeah. Yeah, sanctioned a, a sanctioned game, because we actually could not collect eight Magic players together in the same place, which mm. in retrospect is crazy. But if it hadn't been for these two guys just doggedly showing up, we would we would still to this day not have a Magic scene. Wow. Okay, so when, like, roughly time-wise, when did we actually start to fire F&Ms with some regularity? I'm guessing it was around the six-month mark, but my memory on that's not perfect. Okay. So probably, like, late 2006, early 2007. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, and did you kind of just stick with F&M for a while? I mean, how how involved were... Well, okay, let's let's back this up for a minute. Um, some game stores that you'll encounter in the wild will literally be, like, two people who run it. And it's always those two people who are there. They don't really have employees, it's just the people who own the shop. Uh, how long did it take you before you were able to shift to you actually had employees that ran the store for you? We hired employees to run the store before we opened. Okay, wow. So you just I flipped had, that paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I had the web business to run to a large extent, and I was frantically writing code to support the brick-and-mortar store um, to integrate short short tangent here. All of our code for the website is custom, and it's all in-house. And so when it came to writing a point of sale for the store, it all had to integrate with that, and so we couldn't just buy an off-the-shelf solution. So... I had a lot of non-storefront responsibilities already, and I knew that I had no experience in retail. I'd never worked a retail job, even as a minion in high school, and I wanted people who had some experience in that area. So um, the first thing we did was recruit somebody that we thought uh, had enough experience overseeing a game store to to take care of that, and uh, we hired all of the contract labor over the summer to get the 
um, the place painted and set up and everything. And they were also working on the subscription fulfillment over the summer. And so then we hired some of those people on as, as cashiers and stuff like that. Uh, we still ran the place a lot of times with only one person in the store at a time, which in retrospect is also crazy, but it generally wasn't me. Right. Well, it was a much smaller footprint store than what it what you was. Now. But now I'm like, how did that person ever go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of it, to be honest, was you'd grab a customer that you trusted and say, hey, can you just watch the counter for a minute? I, I <laughs> actually did that a couple of times. I'm sure you did. Uh, not to name names of employees who told me to do that, but yes, that, that did happen uh, from time to time. Okay, so now we've gotten to the point where we're in uh, circa 2007-ish, pushing 2008-ish, and we've got a magic scene that's actually occurring. Uh, do you know how early you started to get you know, fairly sizable crowds and started to do the pre-release gigs and all that kind of stuff? I think we started trying to hold pre-releases right away. Uh-huh. Um, although I'm not 100% sure of that because I don't remember. It, the whole thing's kind of a blur for me as far as the different levels of retailer with uh, Wizards Organized Play and how that's changed over time. Um, I know that our for the first set that released while we were in the store was Cold Snap, and the manager I had hired on at the time had told me to order oodles of it. <laughs> And we took such a bath on Cold Snap. <laughs> I had Cold Snap for probably five years. Like, what are we going to do with this? I don't know. We could wallpaper the bathrooms. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure Did I you? remember. That would have been awesome. That yeah, actually that, would have been the best use of Cold Snap. I, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing Cold Snap booster boxes behind the register from my early days at uh, at Sci-Fi. Yeah, so uh, I don't remember when we made the transition from, oh, no, we're stuck with all this pre-release product to, oh, wow, we're going to need to ask Wizards to up our allocation. Right. Uh, but it was sometime, I, I do know that it didn't take too many years, because you're saying that when you came on in 2009, we already had two game rooms. Uh, yes, yes. Um, we didn't start that way. Uh, the way we got the second game room was by we sort of spent the entire time we were in that space encroaching on our landlord's space. He was the locksmith next door. Oh, right. And so every year or two, we'd just knock out another wall and take over some more of his space. Um, so game room number two was a response to the fact that we were like, oh, my gosh, we're out of space. We got to find some more gaming space. Mm-hmm. And I needed an office because I had been working in that little niche in the back of the game room. And that wasn't working at all. <laughs> I just spent all day talking to gamers, which was awesome, but not productive. Right. So um, I know that probably in the 08, 09 range, we expanded into that second game room. And I think by then things were pretty well cooking with gas. OK, speaking of which, and I hate to, you know, we do digress on tangents fairly often. So it's OK if, if you do. Not so. in our show. I don't believe it closed. I won't have it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a whole archive you should go back and listen to. Um <laughs> When, and this is going to sound uh, accusatory or mean, but I have no other way to ask it. When did Warhammer happen? <laughs> Why is um, that accusatory? I don't understand. Okay, so what you've got to understand is the original sci-fi genre, as I knew it when I started to get involved in magic, space was limited and at a premium, like it is in a lot of game stores. And it kind of got to the point that you could either run a magic tournament or let the Warhammer guys play, but you could not do both. There just wasn't room. Warhammer, God love it, is a huge game as far as space suckage goes. Because they play on a six by four table. And I mean, think how many magic players you can seat in that amount of space. Like 20, depending on the tournament. (laughs) Exactly. Depending on how, how close you're willing to pack them in. So, 
Um, you know, I don't know when Warhammer became a thing, but just like Magic, it was one of those grassroots things where pretty soon Warhammer players were showing up all the time. Um, and and, and of, go ahead. To digress on that, um, not to get the numbers, but does Warhammer make you guys money outside uh, of them buying Warhammer product? Because my game store, like they have Warhammer all people there every Sunday, but I don't know if they really actually charge them to play Warhammer. I don't know about your store, but we charge an entry fee for the events, and then most of the prize support is in store credit. Okay. Um, and uh, we feel like that that gets people in the store. It, it, it We can do escalation leagues where we encourage them to buy new units from the store. Um, and Warhammer players drink a prodigious amount of beer. Yeah, I was going to say once we get to the but atomic em- beer? once we get to the atomic <laughs> empire era, then we'll we'll talk more about that. Uh, I'm I want to go sure. back to this. You guys sell beer? We do. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. I promise. We're we're building to it. Okay, so we're still in the sci-fi genre era. So when did it become apparent to you that there were no more walls to knock out, and you needed more space? So, um, gosh, it was January of 2012. Okay. And we were sitting down with our uh, business consultant, who's my dad, for our annual what the heck have we done with our lives meeting. Of course. Uh, like you do. And we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we grow this store? Um, because it seems like um, you, you would think looking at it, especially from your perspective, that our biggest concern was we're out of game room space. But what our actual biggest concern was, was that we were out of parking space. Oh, I can attest to that. Oh, God. Um, just for the viewers who, or listeners who haven't been there, it was um, – we had a dirt parking lot in front of the store that would maybe accommodate like 10 to 15 cars. And then if you drove down this one-lane dark path next to the store that was like grass and trees and stuff, you would get to this sort of bog in the back. And if you were brave, you could park in the bog. And sometimes, like, if we had a big enough event, we'd park people so deep back there that it was basically like valet parking. Like, you're going to have to wait until everybody else leaves to get your car out. Um, and we had people parking across the street at the dentist's office and next door at the bar. And the guy at the bar kept threatening to tow our customers. And the result of all this is that we had a lot of guys who were like, well, you know, I would have liked to stop by and buy a D&D player's handbook or pick up my subscription, but there was nowhere to park, so I just kept driving. And we started to think, this is a huge financial problem, because as much as we love having the gamers in the store and they drive a lot of business, we're losing the casual drive-by customer because there's nowhere to park. Right. So um, what we have – and we had looked at uh, really – Clearing some more land behind the store and and all of the permitting for that was going to be a nightmare. Um, and so what we decided was, oh, my God, we have to move. And then we realized, oh, my God, our lease is up. Um, so we went on the hunt for real estate and it took us several months of really uh, beating the bushes to make contact with a landlord who was willing to deal on a big space. Mm-hmm. Now, I can, I can tell you when I realized that you needed more space, and it was when I had become a judge, because um, I, I wasn't judging initially when Wait, I first started. But you weren't born a judge? No, believe it or not. I thought uh, he was. It's, it's surprising to me, even now. Uh, but during Innistrad block, which would have been late 2011, early 2012, I remember a pre-release when uh, we were breaking records for how many people were there, and we actually ran out of chairs. 
Yeah, I remember this because there were people sitting in the aisles playing magic, and it's one of my fondest memories of the old store. <laughs> yeah, we had to go. We stole the chairs from the, the front desk, from the cash register. I think we stole chairs from the office. We stole chairs from the warehouse. We stole every chair that wasn't broken, in, and some that were, in the entire building. And we just bold clues to admit to the owner that you're stealing from them. That's bold. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's too late now. That store doesn't exist anymore, so... Uh, but I, I remember we had people like sitting on a stool, like a, a fairly tall stool so that their knees were like at the level of the table. And yeah, that was, we stole the stools from the warehouse. And, that, and I think if I remember correctly, there were still people sitting on the floor. Yes, I believe there were. Uh, it was, it was bad. And I knew and that the aisles too, because we were completely out of table space. There was nowhere to put another table. Yes. Yeah. So that's when I knew that we, we had to have more space. Uh, so the time comes to move. And you find this new space, and the new space it isn't that far from the old space, honestly. Thank it's goodness, what? yeah, it was right around the corner. It's like half a mile. Yeah, yeah, and it's in. Uh, it's now located in kind of a strip mall, and so uh, next to you on one side is uh, a fitness, like a gym, and on the other side is like an Asian food market, and so you're kind of sandwiched in there. The Asian food market, by the way, uh, used to be a circuit city. Um, I once bought a TV from that Circuit City before they folded. That tells Blues, you how that's old. A, that's, a, that's a pretty archaic saying. I know that tells you how old I am. Uh, but that's... I still sometimes describe the store location to people who've been in Durham for too long as you know, right by where the Circuit City used to be. Yes, that's actually a, a pretty apt description. Uh, but it is a much much bigger space. And uh, wow, why don't why don't you describe? the space and the layout to us and maybe contrast it to what the old space was like. Sure. So uh, when we made contact with this landlord and we haggled around about what we were looking for, what he ended up doing was there was a 36,000 square foot Ashley furniture store that was out of business and the space had been empty a long time. Uh, and what he did is he divided one third of it vertically for us. So it, our space is 12,000 square feet, much longer, like much further from the door to the back than it is wide. Um, so in the front, we have all of the merchandise. Then the next section is game room. Uh, behind that, we have bathrooms and a couple of small conference rooms. Behind that, we have the offices for the people who work on the back end. And behind that is uh, about 5,000 square feet of warehouse space for uh, uh, fulfillment and receiving and stuff like that for the web business and also for the store. And so if I'm not mistaken, the current warehouse space is bigger than the entire old store, right? Uh, it's almost the entire old store at its largest was about 6,000 square feet. Okay. So you're just so, shy. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, if you consider how poorly configured shape wise the old store was, it would probably all fit in the warehouse now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the new space is, is great. It's, it's bright. It's well lit. It's clean. Uh, it's, it's funny how you use bright, well-lit, and clean to describe a game store as though you wouldn't expect that. Yeah, it seems like those would be normal, but no. No, they totally are not. Totally You're not. not. Uh, so the move to the new space, as I recall, I wasn't there for it, but I heard about it. And I believe frantic <laughs> might have been a word that was used. So the story behind that is that we... Started on, I honestly don't remember, it was like April when we started on construction and everybody assured us that the upfit would be done uh, by like mid-July at the latest. We needed to move, I think, in, uh, when did we move, Mark? 
Uh, okay, we needed to move by the end of September. So we were like, great, we're going to have like three months. We can paint some murals. We can do all the stuff we want to do before we have to move. Um, then the the guy who was the contractor who was in charge of the whole upfit basically told us lies all summer <laughs> and then bailed. He just he literally disappeared. So you're uh-huh. saying he was a contractor. Yeah, he was completely a contractor. Um, so we we had to do all these stop gaps. We found somebody to come in and do the work. Everything ran way over budget. Um, and the linchpin was that you're not allowed to move anything into a space as far as retail uh, product goes until you pass your final fire inspection. Um, and there was really, really dumb stuff that went on in the week leading up to this, but they kept failing us for really stupid stuff like the uh, the angle of the ramp out the back of the building, you know, was a degree off. Like it, there was terrible stuff. So coming up to the grand opening, which, of course, we had advertised everywhere because, you know, you have to tell people that these sorts of things are happening, especially if you're moving your existing store. Um, we had no certificate of occupancy and we did not know if we'd be able to open the store. So I had actually rented tents to put up in the parking lot so that we could hold our grand opening there if it came down to it. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was scary. It was pretty much the most stressful week of my life. So the fire inspector comes back at about um, 5 o'clock. No, it was about 4 o'clock the day before we're supposed to open. So this was like Friday night. Um, and we're supposed to hold FNM in the store that night. And we have no product in the store and no human habitation stuff like tables and chairs and stuff. So he comes back and he looks over everything and there's a really, really tense moment as he's walking out because we know there's stuff he can fail us on if he wants to be a jerk about it because there's always something that a fire inspector can fail you on. Um, but he passes us. So now we have to rush downtown to get our paperwork so that we can start moving in. And at this point, we've got a bunch of people with U-Haul trucks in front of the store waiting for us to arrive with their certificate of occupancy. Wow. And so, like, five o'clock hits, we get back with it, and we start moving, and we moved all night. It was ridiculous. And meanwhile, we're holding FNM in the back. <laughs> and then at 10 o'clock the next morning, we opened the place. And I, I can't remember, I think this was the week before the return to Ravnica pre-release. It would have been right around there, because I think that was the first big event that we had, magic-wise. I thought, I thought the, really, the first really big event was States. Uh, might have been states. It, it would have been around the time of RTR. R- Return to Ravnica, actually, uh, the pre-release would have been September, I think, 29th of 2012. So end of September of 2012. Okay. Uh, so. And that's actually the day that we opened the store. So yeah, it probably was that weekend. All right. And, uh, the, the rest. Don't let, cl- don't let clues be right. <laughs> clues is always right. How long have no. you been doing this? No. <laughs> no. I have to record with him. No. <laughs> we we can't allow that. That's that's just not right. And I, and I think I think states was October 15th, which would make sense because it's 2 weeks later. Right. Because it's always 2 weeks after a pre-release. And um funny story. So I'm at I'm at Autocross Nationals in Lincoln, Nebraska, um at the at the beginning of September. And I get this call from Jeff Darren, who for those of you who don't know is is one of the huge proponents of magic at our store and is kind of our judge organizer in, in addition to other things. And cool. Jeff says, Hey, um, we got invited to hold magic States. And, uh, one of your employees said no, because you have a Warhammer tournament that day. 
um, fix it. <laughs> that totally sounds like Jeff. Yeah. He was like, are you sure you want me to say no? And I was like, no, I don't want you to say no. We have, you know, 5,000 square feet of gaming space or whatever. We'll make it work. Um, and we didn't have anywhere near enough fixtures to fill this new store anyway. So we could basically put tables everywhere. Like, Clues, if we, is this the Jeff I know? Uh, this is the Jeff you know. Yeah, this is Jeff. He's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, friend, friend of the show, friend of mine. Uh, great guy. Great guy. So, um, so I, I, you know, circled back with all of our employees and said, yeah, we have space to do both of these things. And it was one of those things that was just kind of a revelation that we could hold what to us was a pretty big Warhammer tournament and a huge, like the biggest magic tournament we'd ever had and, and make that work in the same space. Now, as I recall from that states, when, when you say that we, we didn't have enough uh, tables, I, I think you had employees go over to the Sam's Club across the street and buy tables and chairs that day uh, to actually it- seat people. If I remember correctly, your your wife was one of the people who did that. <laughs> I, I believe that is I believe that is correct. Yes. Yeah, we we had people scrambling. We did not have enough tables. I think we had 173 people show up or something like that. Yeah, it was huge. It was gigantic, and that was kind of the last year that, or maybe one of the last years that states was a really huge thing before Star City and TCG Player kind of split it up and and made something of a confusing mess out of it. Yeah, what? I, I miss states. Yeah, I know the the uh, Star City and TCG player would never never make anything a mess. Nor would Watsi ever make bad decisions about uh, changing tournament structures. That right? Yeah, that never happened. All of these parties are faultless. Uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Like me, just like Rich. <laughs> absolutely. And Jace. Okay, so now we have. <laughs> Uh, actual Atomic Empire. Now, the burning question that I know you've explained many times, but lots of our listeners may not know. Why, in God's name, would you change your name from sci-fi genre to Atomic Empire? What's up with that? Well, I mean, it's really hard to to leave such a great name like sci-fi genre, um, which caused me to get phone calls to the effect of, hi, I'm trying to reach Skiffy Genry. Or uh, that, those, this one lady who said, that's beautiful. What language is that? I was like, English. <laughs> I mean, with a bit of a French derivation. Um, so, yeah, sci-fi genre was a huge albatross name. Uh, so we knew it had to change. And it took us basically all summer or all spring to pick something and settle on it. It was the fur was flying. Our entire group of friends was involved. And we at every social event, basically it devolved into figure out a new name for sci-fi genre. Um, I like Skiffy genre. That sounds great. Skiffy, Skiffy Genry was, was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, we could have just, we, we discussed just changing the phonetic spelling so that you could pronounce it, even if it didn't mean anything when we were done. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So atomic empire was um, available as a domain name. We managed to buy it from somebody after we had settled on it. And so that was a big, uh, that was a big factor in that becoming the name, honestly, because it's very difficult to find a domain name these days. Yeah, we know all about domain names being a problem. Uh, by the way, our website is cardadvantagecast.com. Yeah, I feel your pain. Yeah. Well, at least we don't share it with a porn site. Uh, that is that is true. <laughs> at least we don't share it with a porn site, which I was going to say might be the name of this episode, but no, I don't. I don't think that's right. Uh, we we probably won't do that. Uh, okay, so new space. Let me ask this now that we're into, uh, uh, 
you know, kind of the, the modern era of Atomic Empire. Uh, how has the new space worked out compared to the old space? I mean, oh, as far as a business goes. Um, it's a thousand times better. Uh, the old space was off the beaten track in a residential neighborhood with a couple of businesses in it. And so the opportunity for people to just drive by and discover us was basically zero. Plus, uh, our curb appeal, oh, I would say put us somewhere in between a place you would buy drugs that had been cut with dirt and a strip club. So <laughs> Sounds like my favorite place. Yeah, so. soccer moms were not stopping by. Um, so I, I question like how much of your business is people who just drive by like, drive by not regulars i guess i should say our business is still predominantly regulars but now we have a lot more people who drive by and are able to become regulars um okay. their kids drag them in because they're over at the asian market or they drive by and they're like what's that uh which is not something that ever happened in the old space and it's just a lot more inviting it looks more professional it looks like a place where people would go to buy things <laughs> Which, to be fair, the old one did not. Not so much. Yeah, yeah. and the old one really was, if you did not know where it was, you were not finding it. You were never going to find it, yeah. Um, and the first the first week we were open in the new space, a guy walks in and he's like, I knew a motorcycle repair shop that moved and changed their name at the same time. They were out of business in six months. And I was like, well, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Um, but luckily, I think that most of our customers managed to make the jump with us. And we still have people walk in and say, oh, you guys were atomic or you guys were sci-fi genre. I just thought they closed and you guys opened, you know. But it, it appears that game store fans will find a game store uh, if one opens. And, and that helps us a lot. Yeah. At least in this yeah. case, Atomic Empire did kill off the old store. That was <laughs> yes, there. it did. Yeah. It sort so. of cannibalized its remains, actually. This time around. Uh, so here you guys put something. I'm sorry. No, sorry, I'm laughing to myself. Uh, so now that we're into the modern era, let me let me now ask. Let's let's take a step back and let's look at uh, game stores conceptually. Uh, what 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 kind of place does Magic occupy as a game store owner? Is it uh, is it a a big driver of business? Is it kind of uh, a sap on resources? What where exactly does it really fit in an actual game store's livelihood? I mean, for us, it's a gigantic driver of business. Um, it's most of our biggest events, uh, as far as attendance go, are, are Magic. Um, it has, unlike so many games with organized play, it has regular events that everybody wants to go to, like pre-releases. Um, it's very difficult to find another game that gets that number of people in the store consistently. It has a low barrier to entry, which means you can sell it to almost anybody, you know, get them into a starter deck. Um, and so, and, and with the singles market on the back end, you know, if you're selling sealed product and singles and buying singles back from your customer base, you have this sort of cycle that makes it really easy to continue to have revenue from all that. Right. And uh, I should mention uh, for for folks uh, who aren't aware, yes, Atomic Empire does do singles. They don't do singles online, but they do singles in the store. So Although we are so close to our online beta of our system. Very yeah. excited about yeah, that. I wasn't going to tell everybody that yet until oh, we, until we got to the end. But that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> we, we just we just teased something cool. Uh, but you know, most most game stores that do magic will dabble in singles, and I think it's safe to describe what sci-fi genre did with singles as dabbling in singles. You you had some binders. 
Yeah, and to some extent, there's nothing more dangerous than dabbling in singles. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a really, really daunting market, and you have to know a lot about it to be successful. And one of the things that we didn't have at the old store was somebody who wanted to make that their beast and and really run that. And I guess this is a theme that I would touch on a lot with game stores or any uh, business operation is you have to find people who are really, really good at stuff and then convince them to do it for you. Um, because you can't be good at everything as a store owner. And so your goal needs to be, instead of um, becoming good at everything, finding people you trust who are good at those things. So when we moved into Atomic Empire, uh, uh, John showed up, and uh, who is now uh, a really, really important person in our business, and said, you know, well, first off, we hired him on to help in the store, but then the longer he was there, the more he was like, we need to be doing this with singles, we need to be doing that with singles, can I put some people on sorting these singles and, you know, building the inventory and all of this. And so uh, I think that the way that we were finally able to stop dabbling and make singles a really important part of the business is that John had the expertise to make that work. Right. And uh, they they now have a much better system for those who haven't been there. And by the way, if you haven't been to Atomic Empire, shame on you. You should go to Atomic Empire. It's a great shop. You should check it out. Uh, they have an electronic like kiosk system. So there are several laptops that are set up and you can kind of uh, scroll through the inventory and mark cards that you want and click purchase. And it will send that electronically to the folks behind the counter and then they'll see it pop up and then they can go and pull out your singles and they'll, they'll give them to you when they're done. So you don't have to just sit there flipping through binder after binder or flipping through box after box trying to find the things you want and hoping that you've got all their prices right when you pull them out. No, it's, it's all done through the electronic kiosks and, uh, it, it makes it way, way easier. It's not quite as visceral uh, for those who like flipping through binders, but... Yeah, we've had a lot of complaints from binder flippers. My God, it is so much more efficient. Uh, it really is. <laughs> the, the first time I encountered this sort of system, uh, I had gone to uh, Cafe Mox uh, out at Card Kingdom, out, at, uh, out in Seattle, and they had an electronic kiosk. And uh, the first time I used it, I'm like, man, this is really weird. I like binders. But then I submitted my order, and like five minutes later, someone handed me all the cards that I wanted, and I'm like, hey, actually, that was really convenient. So, yeah, I could get used to this. Oddly enough, there's the same contingent, even a bigger contingent of comic book fans who do not want to order from a list. They want to flip through thousands of comics at a time in boxes. It's, yeah. it's, it's a section of the hobby and I wish that we could, with the, with the cards, it's sort of impossible for us to serve both those masters, but I wish we could. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So how about, uh, magic tournaments themselves? How, how do those work for you as a business? I mean, do you, do you find that the magic players who come in tend to buy things while they're there or, uh, you know, is it, kind of a loss leader just to get people in the store? I mean, how do, like, let, let's say F&M. What, what, what does F&M do for you? Well, you know, that's a really good question because um, there's a constant struggle and a tension between wanting to make F&M as attractive as possible to the player so that they come in the store, but not wanting to lose your shirt on it. And there are a lot of people who will tell you that F&M is supposed to be a loss leader and that you should just be happy to have people in the store. We have really fought to make FNM break even at the very least, that what we give away isn't any bigger than what we took in. 
Um, but that hasn't always been easy, and I'm not sure it's the most popular approach among other game stores. Um, I, I think that people do buy stuff when they come in. I think that how much they buy is a little bit related to the seriousness of the tournament. The more competitive the tournament, I feel like the less sort of auxiliary buying there is because people are there for a purpose and they're very focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't eat and drink as much. Um, and, you know, if it's constructed, they already have their sleeves, et cetera. Like, whereas at a pre-release, uh, people will pick up some sleeves and some, some other nonsense. Um, I love nonsense. <laughs> nonsense is my favorite. That's why I run a game store. Uh, so I don't know if that answered the question, but yeah, we try to at least make tournaments break even, um, and, and in an ideal world, make a profit on their own. Right, right. That even, even if no one actually buys bunches of stuff that, you know, you didn't just lose your shirt paying an employee right. to stand around. Part of it is that we have such a big game room that we feel like it needs to be a bit of a revenue generator on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you just look at a price per square foot of how we're using that space, it's it's not cheap to run that game room. Right. Uh, so now let me ask kind of a self-serving question. Uh, what? So a- another thing that you'll have in game stores very commonly, and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there will sympathize with this sort of thing, uh, a lot of game stores, you won't really have a judge who's running your tournament. What you've got is the guy behind the counter, like kind of barks out what your pairings are like once an hour, and that's about it. Uh, at least from the earliest days that I remember, even back in the sci-fi genre days, uh, you pretty much always had a judge running stuff, running the mm-hmm. events. Uh, do, do, obviously, you see that as, as something that's valuable, but uh, why? Let's ask that. I mean, I would say that that goes back to the theme of find people who are really good at doing something and let them do it. <laughs> because they want to. And so when we started our staff, we didn't really have anybody who had the expertise to run tournaments on staff. Um, and we had these guys who were interested in becoming judges, developing their skills and, and running events. And I think those are the right people to do it because they spread their enthusiasm to the players. They're always going to be better at it because it's something that they choose to do in their free time than somebody who has to do it while they, you know, run the counter or whatever and isn't uh, recreationally involved in it. Um, and they they pass on, you know, judges pass on a huge amount of expertise to one another. Uh, both in the operations side of how to handle penalties and and how to keep things running on time, but also the rules side of you know uh, being consistent in rulings and and knowing what the cards do because they play the game. Right. And you know I'll at my plug for having judges at your tournaments, uh, it just makes the whole thing more professional because you know it. I'm not going to say it always runs like clockwork because it doesn't. But when you've got someone who judges a lot and judges consistently, they're used to the rulings. They're used to the things that the terrible software will do because the software is terrible. Uh, and so it just, oh, it just close. makes it I haven't better. heard that from you before. Yeah, I know. I've never once complained about the software that uh, they make us use to run the tournaments that generate them revenue. Seriously. Uh, and another thing that I'll mention that, that Atomic does correctly, I think, uh, so... In addition to trying to make your tournaments actually make you a little bit of money or at least break even, uh, you also insist on actually compensating your judges for their time. And there are stores that don't. 
There are game stores that actually expect people to come and judge tournaments without any compensation. Or at best, oh, I'll give you free entry to FNM if you run my FNM. Which, uh, is, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go right out and say that it's dumb. That's really a terrible way to do things. Well, you know, on, to some extent, and I can't, I can't speak to it because I, I don't know, but, uh, well, I'm gonna speak to it anyway. To some extent, I wonder if, those sorts have had relationships with judges who didn't kind of stand up for their rights. Um, and so that became kind of the norm is, well, we don't pay you, but you get free entry. And this was fine with the first guy who did it. And mm-hmm. so it's never occurred to them that it needs to change. And maybe conversations have been had with with these sorts of organizers to say, no, that's really not cool. But I know that uh, Jeff, uh, who keeps coming up, um, Jeff and I have always had an open line of communication where he'll say we need to be paying more or we need to be doing this, or at big events they're doing that, and do you think we could do that for our judges? And so he's been kind of our judge liaison and judge advocate to make sure that we're appropriately compensating everybody. And you guys definitely do it right. I'll just put it right out there. You definitely do it right, um, which is why I miss it so much. I'm so sad, so terribly sad. We miss you too. Uh, so let me ask another question. Um, with the move to the new space, uh, if I can go into a topic that uh, we'll see how comfortable we are all with it. Uh, <laughs> it, it opened up certain options for, uh, uh, snacks, let's say, that you did not have before in the old space. Uh, so as we alluded to earlier in the conversation, uh, the new space does actually sell beer, mm-hmm. uh, b- behind the snack bar. Uh, so you've got, uh, uh, pop, you've got, uh, several taps, you've got, uh, you know, your usual, uh, beef jerky and hot pockets and things that, that you'll sell. Um, how much of a revenue generator are the kind of foodstuffs for you, uh, uh, when you've got a big tournament coming in? So it really, really depends on the tournament. And like I mentioned earlier, a competitive magic event generates relatively little food revenue, right? But, a competitive Warhammer event uh, where people travel a long way basically to get drunk, um, which, hey, I'm behind that. I go to cons for that. Um, I also go racing for that. Uh, you know, where there's more of a social atmosphere and less of a competitive atmosphere, that's a much bigger driver in those events. So um, let's see, to boil that down, how much food, et cetera, we sell during an event definitely depends on the character of the event. But I think that really... When it comes to the overall picture, we like to have beer on tap because it's awesome. And if it breaks even, we're pretty happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so even if it weren't profitable, it's still worth the hassle because it's cool. It completely is. People say, oh, my gosh, have you heard of this game store? They have beer there. And, you know, the reasoning behind that at first was Mark and I would, would come and play the games in the store and say, this would be cooler if we could drink a beer. Right. Because when we game at home, we drink beer at the same time. And isn't it silly that we go to our store and we can't? Um, and so that was one of the big goals that we had when we decided to move was let's make that a reality so that the, so that the sort of people like us will just come to the store and game. Now, I also want to make absolutely clear to folks that uh, Atomic is not a bar that's also a game store. It's a game store that happens to serve beer. Okay, and there's there's That's a big correct. difference between those two things. The uh, the atmosphere of the game store is very much uh, this is a family friendly gaming space. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, that's fine, but that's not our focus. We're we're not a bar. Right. It's uh, more sort of like the concession stand at a ballpark. 
Yes. Like you can, you know, you get stuff at the concession stand and take it back to your seat. Right. Uh, and uh, to my knowledge, uh, you know, it, th- another thing that, that people will, you know, question when this kind of topic gets brought up is, uh, oh, really? You guys let people drink? Have you ever had any problems? And t- t- to my knowledge, uh, barring Warhammer, because I'm usually not there for the Warhammer tournaments, we've had one, maybe two incidents in all the time you've been open where we've had to tell a customer, okay, look, I really think you need to stop drinking now. Uh, yes, and I think it's possible it was the same customer both times. It, it may have been. We're not naming names. Uh, We're not naming names. Certainly but, not. you know, it's been really f- interesting because uh, people don't come to the store just to drink. No. So it's not a bar. And the truth is that when people are gaming and concentrating on that, they don't tend to drink to excess. Right. Um, and then the other side of it is that we take our uh, alcohol license extremely seriously and we police drunkenness and we ID everyone and we're just very, very serious about that because we know with minors in the store how easy it would be for us to lose our beer license. Yeah. Um, and so I think that our gamers have absorbed that to some extent and they understand that it's not a place to come in and get drunk because it doesn't make us look good. Yeah, it doesn't make them look good. It doesn't, it doesn't make anyone have a good time, quite frankly. Right. And, and so I really have been impressed with our community and how self-policing they've been and how aware they've been of those issues. Because we also, we don't have minors try to order alcohol, uh, which you'd think would be a problem in this kind of place. But everybody seems to understand that it's a serious issue and yeah. that nobody wants to go there. Right. And you've got good employees who do card everybody. So yeah, it's, it's, even when they know you, legally they have to card you. And so. I've been carded a number of times, but usually I don't drink because I'm judging. Cause right. I, I never do that. But every now and then I get to go and play. It's rare. Very, very rare. Uh, okay, so let me ask this. You have spent uh, more than a decade now building uh, uh, a store, first online, then in a smaller space, then in a bigger space. Uh, do you have advice for uh, either current game store owners or someone who's thinking of starting a game store of what you can do to succeed. I mean, it's not like you had a secret recipe when you started, but based on your experience, what sorts of things can people do to make sure that they can go from start to the dream? So the first thing, and, you know, I can only speak to my experience, and so if I say this should work and that might not, everybody will have an example for how they made that work. But um, I feel like lots of game stores try to open up with no budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a pretty big mistake because if, you know, you can convince your your customers that you have this gaming space and that they should special order stuff through you and that's how you're going to make money. But the truth is that there's no substitute for the impulse buy. So if you don't have the budget to put merchandise on the shelves, you really shouldn't open a store. Um, and I think that you probably need a budget in the fifty to a hundred thousand range, right? Just to even think about getting started. Um, which you know, and I think that there are just so many game stores that open with the first month's rent in the bank, mm-hmm. and then they just don't know where to go from there. Um, the other thing that I would say is, I think that there are a lot of game stores, at least in our area, that have potentially not succeeded because. They don't have a mass appeal. Um, you know, they are conceived of to serve the magic crowd or the wargaming crowd, and they don't think about where they're going to get the majority of their sales because 
and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because when you promote a game store, you know, most of the signage and most of the advertising that you're going to do is going to go in front of the general populace. If you're in a strip mall, most of the people walking by are not magic players because magic players are an extremely small subset of society. So it really helps if you have something in the front window and the front of the store that has a more general appeal to somebody who would be walking by. Like um, Batman. Yeah, like Batman or we, uh, the whole front of our store is a huge board game section. And I think that that's a great way to go because if somebody walks in and they don't know you, you can talk to anybody about board games. You know, you you can train your employees how to talk about the fact that Monopoly is a bad game and, you know, people should really try Settlers of Catan because it doesn't feature player elimination and it plays really fast. Um, and so that's sort of an, a conversation entry point that you can have with anybody off the street, whereas but collectible Settlers games, focuses on cutthroat ruining someone's life. Well, well yeah, yeah, but only if you play with the right people. <laughs> um, so... I mean, whereas like the, the collectible card games are a really difficult concept to explain to the guy off the street. Uh, he's going to walk in and say, "Oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into this stuff. I don't really know what you guys are doing back there," and walk back out. And so the idea is, how do you capture that customer who has no idea what you're doing in there? And I think that uh, comic books, board games, toys, those are ways to say when a customer walks in, "Oh, I understand what they sell here. I could find something I wanted here." Yeah, and you guys have such a huge selection of board games. Pretty much no matter who walks in off the street, you can find a board game that will suit them. Yeah, or if not that, um, an ice cube tray of the Millennium Falcon. Like, we'll find you something. Right, right, um, which is definitely the – I have the Han Solo frozen carbonite ice cube tray purchased That's a good one. from Atomic yeah. Empire. Uh, so, yeah. So, All right. yeah, I guess, like, advice one would be open with some money, and advice two would be don't let – your gaming focus eliminate product lines that will have a more general appeal. Right. Uh, so is it fair to say in, in my uh, kind of uh, reading of, of what we've been talking about that too often game stores fail because they focus too much on the game and not enough on the store? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably fair. I think that a lot of store owners are enthusiasts and it's dangerous to, open a business in something where you're an enthusiast because it's easy to get focused on doing that thing and not being a business owner. Right. I, I think it, oh no, I'm sorry, go ahead, Rich. Nope, go ahead, finish your thought. I was going to change the subject. Uh, I think it also kind of helps to have had a successful online business to kind of uh, keep the rest of it afloat until it starts to turn a profit. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I mean, everybody will tell you this and it's hard to believe until you do it. But when you open a small business, you're probably going to lose money for three to five years. And so if you're if your outlook when you're going into it is, OK, well, I've got a couple of months in the bank, but I'm going to need to turn a profit in a few months. You, you're not in a position to open a business. Uh, you probably need to be prepared to lose money for a while. Mm-hmm. Game stores, my lottery goal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, my lottery goal is to open Atomic Empire North. I, I think we can make that happen. Yeah, I, I think that's not a bad idea. Uh, knowing what I know about. And anyway, no, sorry, I was I was going down a different dark road. Uh, sorry about mm-hmm. that. Uh, okay, so uh, I I think that's everything that uh, that I wanted to to cover. 
Um, how prevalent are some of the other um, collectible games at your store, i.e., um, like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and whatnot? Um, you know, we have struggled to get both Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh started. Um, and please stop struggling on Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Hey man, I'm going to put in a solid note money. comment on that. Um, to a large extent, because of the way we operate, uh, where it's not really the store owners deciding, hey, I'm going to demo this game to everybody and make it work, we rely a lot on community organizers to to make a game go. And we have had uh, some games where we have phenomenal organizers who are very enthusiastic, like Magic and Warhammer, and other games where we have trouble finding somebody who wants to step up and be that guy who shows up every Saturday until other people start to show up. And both Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! have kind of suffered from that. And I know there have been some other games that have come and gone. I know uh, Legend of the Five Rings used to be there. Yeah. uh, Kudo is just going strong. Oh, Kaijudo's fantastic, yeah. No, it's terrible. Um, (laughs) Although we still have Kaijudo posters up on the wall. Oh, we should probably take those down. Yeah. Kajuda's been in the dollar bin for a while now, but nobody will buy it. Um, uh, yeah, we've, we've, uh, Legend of the Five Rings did really well for a while, mostly because it had a very devoted organizer who then switched over to Netrunner, and now Netrunner is doing phenomenally well. Right. Um, so, and, and we've definitely found a market for some of those non-collectible LCGs among people who look at magic and they're like, I can't possibly keep up with the expenditure of playing magic, especially the people who know that they're the sort of people who would have to collect everything and would have to have competitive decks. And so the LCG is a nice step down for those people who, who are like, Oh, well I can have everything I want for $15 a month. Has, um, force of will made any sort of impact in your store yet? None, none, none. Yeah. I'll be honest, Rich, you're the only one who I've ever heard talk about it. (laughs) It's a new game. It's growing, and it's actually really fun. I'm just Is curious. it good? It's a. It's great. They took some of the decent parts of Yu-Gi-Oh, and they took some parts of Magic, and they combined it together for a game. That's cool. It's really fun. You should check it out. There's some stuff on YouTube. You look at it. It's re- it looks. Re- it's really fun. I enjoy it. I've, I've heard of it, but I just yeah, we hadn't gotten and anything on I it yet. I can't cannot undersell the artwork of this game. Oh, that that's a good seller. It's be- and the detail like their cards if. They're b- the back of their every back of every card is like an actual work of art. Like I almost don't ever want to touch cards without gloves on. Wow! Wow! Well, they're, they're slightly etched and just beautiful. What well, what size are they? Are they the standard magic size? Standard size. Okay, so sleeves are totally a thing. Oh yeah, pretty much almost all my stuff is sleeved or booked. Yeah. And I showed you a picture of what they're doing with their super super rare foiling. Yeah, you did. That was pretty cool. I'd like to see it in person, but yeah. Pretty awesome. So, but just like I was just curious because I know my local game store is trying to get it going, and we're not struggling, but it's not the best. What do you guys do to try to get a game going? Because I think that's one of the more interesting topics about how to run a game store is how do you get people into something new when they're already into something else? Well, there's well, one um, the kind of the word of mouth, like they didn't start it, like people kind of brought it to them. Like they ask, hey, are you going to start carrying this product? And then they'll buy a little bit, and then if they sell out, they buy more. Mm-hmm. And then they okay, and then they get people who are playing there, and like, oh, hey, you guys hold tournaments? Do you do this? And then they kind of find out a night that works for the players and the people, and then they'll start hosting tournaments. Mm-hmm. Like they found out their Saturday nights don't really have much going on, so they're hosting them Saturday nights. And sometimes they have like twenty people, and sometimes they have five. Wow. Yeah, and that kind of comes down to that. You have that point with a game where you're going to hit sort of a sink or swim point 
where it's either going to coalesce into something where multiple people are coming out and so it becomes a regular thing or it's sort of going to fizzle. And we've always had trouble identifying that that fizzle point and and getting through it with certain games. Well, my my story right into we had a lot of our regulars were really the all really closer in age, and then when they all kind of went to college elsewhere, mm-hmm. they kind of come back for kind of the summer and that's about it, and they just haven't been able to get new people in the store. That's that's a real challenge, yeah. So. But they they make it work for the most part. But F and M, some when I was there, sometimes we had F and Ms like you know fifty people, and now I sometimes they struggle to get thirty. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, still the best game store around here for me. I mean that's just still pretty healthy F and M number. So is it? I honestly don't know. I think it is. Um, you know, you always you always get the email from Wizards. It's like find out how this store got four hundred and fifty people to F and M, and you're like, where? What? <laughs> I know they really, they reached advanced status because we got like three pre-releases, hundred plus people, mm-hmm. nice. and so they they released advanced status, and that is that that kind of like the pre-releases. I guess they still just kill on pre-releases, but that's kind of about it. They don't do as well on FNMs like they used to. But it's hard to convince people to keep coming out every Friday, and I think that um, it's helped us a lot to uh, make modern and legacy a part of our Friday night scene now because uh, when standard gets kind of stale, then those formats pick up and, and take up some of the slack. Um, yeah. And at we, the beginning of a set draft does really well. Oh but yeah. Then obviously that begins to sort of taper off towards the end. Yeah. They don't really do much with draft because they pretty much just run standard for the most part. They've tried some modern, but a lot of people aren't with a lot of younger people at the store who just could not afford to get into it. Can't buy in. Yeah. Yeah, if they couldn't buy in. So they, they get some, like, you know, one time they tried it, run it once, and we had, like, six of us, and he was able to sanction it, or at least he claimed. He, I don't know if he actually sanctioned it, but he actually gave us prizes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there was only six of us, and it was, I don't know, that was the only people who could afford to have a modern deck. Right. Yeah, and it really, it's so uh, dependent on on your local player base, whereas we have a lot of, of more mature players you know, who are on their living on their own, have jobs, et cetera, and so our modern scene is a little bit more vibrant. Yeah, yeah. my my biggest regret after uh, having having now left was that I never managed to get uh, vintage F and M to fire because I no, one wants that. <laughs> no, no, I talked to the you vintage to, you, players and I came up like, with at least six. It's to, those last like, two. Yeah, you have to let them like proxy like the entire deck. No, no, no. These were actual non-proxy vintage players who were willing to come out to FNM just to do it the once. Are any vintage players truly 100% non-proxy? Because don't yeah. yeah. Even oh, vintage. God, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we don't actually vintage have tournaments actually allow like 10 proxies. No, not sanctioned. Well, I understand not a sanctioned one, but how many people are actually sanctioned vintage? Uh, well, at least once a year we have Eternal Weekend, which happened last weekend in Philadelphia, and they had a huge number of. Uh, of vintage folks, like hundreds of vintage folks with non-proxy decks. Well, and haven't we been running a quarterly sanctioned vintage? Uh, we don't, we don't sanction the vintage. Uh, okay. our, our vintage, so Atomic I thought Empire, we had split it into doing a sanctioned one and a, and a proxy one. Uh, no, we do a sanctioned legacy. Okay. On Saturday yeah. and a 15 proxy vintage on Sunday. Maybe we had started talking about doing a sanctioned vintage. Yeah. As well. And, you know, I, I think if you timed it right and advertised it in the right places, you might be able to pull that off because vintage players are very passionate about their game. And uh, yeah. 
if if you can give them an actual sanctioned non-proxy vintage tournament, it might be able to happen. Talk talk to Josh. I think yeah. you guys can make that happen at least once. That would be fun. So that would be fun to film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely would. Hey, we didn't even talk about streaming because that's another thing that you guys have have dabbled in uh, mm-hmm. at, at big tournaments. But maybe maybe that's a topic for another time. We could basically do a whole show on streaming. I'm sure that there are some guests who would be really illuminating. Uh, yeah, so we've we've had uh, Shoebox. You, you remember Shoebox? Mm-hmm. Yeah, works for Star City Games because Shoebox used to be a local judge uh, down down there too. Uh, we've had him on to talk about uh, streaming from Star City's angle uh, before. Uh, which was pretty cool, but yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I don't know, Rich, do you have any last minute questions here? Nope. Uh, JJ, do you have any last minute messages that you wanted to get out there that uh, we, we didn't talk about? I don't think so. Okay, great. So, uh, first, let me thank you. I really, really appreciate, uh, you joining us tonight. Uh, it was great to, you know, talk about some of this, uh, this background stuff. Um, if folks wanted to get a hold of you or to uh, get a hold of the store, uh, is there any website or Twitter feed that you might want to talk about right now? Yeah, uh, you can definitely reach us through the contact page at AtomicEmpire.com. Uh, our Twitter handle is at Atomic underscore Empire. Um, and my personal, I don't know that I have a personal Twitter. I do. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> I am at JJ can't be bothered B O T H R D. I obviously tweet a lot. Um but yeah, I would be happy to hear from people and I'm always happy to hear from other game store owners because it, I feel like getting to talk to other game store owners is like meeting a unicorn, you know, and and mm-hmm. you can exchange war stories. Um so yeah, I'd be happy to hear from listeners. And if anyone happens to be passing through the Durham, North Carolina area, I certainly encourage them to go look for Atomic Empire in Durham, North Carolina. It's a great shop. You should check it out. Do stop by. We are only 20 minutes from the airport. This is true. This is true. And uh, there's there's some good restaurants nearby. Uh, it's it's a nice little area. Um, and it's an absolutely phenomenal game store. Quite frankly. Oh well, thank you. I I just want to say a big thank you. I know I've I've said it before in person, but I want to say a big thank you to you for all of the the years of wonderful uh, gaming and judging and the wonderful community that you have built up there at Atomic because it's it's a very special thing. I think. Well, thank you for being uh, such an excellent proponent of of that community, and thanks for having me on tonight. It's been a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, if you guys want to give us some feedback, if uh, maybe there's something that we were supposed to ask that we didn't, or if there's somebody that you'd like us to, to have on or to talk about, you can do that a variety of ways. You can find us on our website. We are cardadvantagecast.com. You can email us. It is mtgcardadvantage at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We are at cardadvantage. If you want to hit me up, your best bet is Twitter. I'm usually pretty responsive on that. I am at Lacluse, spelled just like it is in the show notes. And I am at Lacluse needs to stop talking for once in his life. Um spelt like Mind Mage. Yeah, that's that's not gonna happen. We've done a lot of these shows. You you know that's not how I roll. I, I can't stop myself. Uh anyway, this oh, has been I know. this has been episode number ninety eight. We are barreling towards one hundred. Episode number ninety eight of Card Advantage. Thank you all very much for listening, and we will yeah. see you all next time.
And believe it or not, that's, that's actually, yeah, I was going to say, that's actually how it ends, the music I, I put in later. Right, yeah. <laughs> Most people understand that, Clues. Yeah, I know, it's just, I, I have occasionally had guests on where they're like, I really expected the music there, and... That's hilarious, it's all, and adorable. All, I think you should just hum the music. <laughs> we, I've actually had CJ, CJ Schrader, who does our, uh, our, our flavor cast episodes with us, I've actually had him start to sing it before. Nice. 